welcome to the Travelling Sisterhood of Art Historians podcast. We are Maddie, Freya, Caroline and Serena, four art historians who each week will be chatting to an expert about visual and material culture in the 18th and 19th centuries. Join us on an art historical journey as we think about how images and objects shaped our world. Hello, this episode we're talking paint. When we were putting together a list of materials that we wanted to discuss on the podcast, we didn't initially include paint. When you think of a painting, you might think more about the image it produces than the material properties of paint itself or the tools that are used to handle it. But when we chatted to the wonderful Dr. Kate Nichols at the University of Birmingham, she put us right, and as you will hear in the interview, reveals the ways paint can be understood as part of the fabric of art history, as well as its economic and colonial implications. But first, let's recap what we, four art historians who rarely work on paint, actually know about it. This is so true, Maddie, that we often think of paint as this kind of ubiquitous substance in art history. So when we're trying to think beyond that, we often end up ignoring paint. You know, it's the go-to medium. It's what we see when we enter art galleries. It's the primer to art history, if you like. It's also what most of us first use when we encounter art in school. And I have many happy memories of finger painting and potato prints and things like that. So what I find fascinating is the way in which paint is this route into creativity and artistic interaction for so many of us. And that this often involved using paint to interact with or alter other forms of artwork. So in particular, I'm really interested in how people use paint to create and subvert and change things like the fashion plates. So fashion plates were printed images, usually included in magazines or pocketbooks, which were supposed to communicate the latest fashions, and they were popular in the 18th and 19th centuries. So while some were published in colour, themselves professionally hand-painted, many were published in black and white. However, what we see in many surviving magazines is that these black and white images were coloured in by their owners using things like watercolours. This colouring in was um, often quite rough and ready, If we were going to be polite about it, we would call it naive. And they certainly didn't necessarily keep within the lines. So it can have this feeling of a child's colouring book. I think it's quite likely that these images were coloured in by girls using their first paint boxes. So I think it's really fascinating how paint has always been fundamental to this early creative interaction with the world. I think these two narratives that you've sketched here, Serena, are key to the history of paint. On the one hand, it's the art historical material, and it makes up some of the most prized uh, works from history. And on the other hand, it's this highly portable medium, kept in tubes or small boxes, and transported with us as children, or maybe used as an object of recreation. And so this duality reminds me of one of the big transformations that happens with paint in the second half of the period that we're interested in on the podcast. And that's the invention of the portable paint tube in 1841 by the American artist John Rend. 
So used from a tube, the artist could compress and squeeze the necessary amount of colour out of the tube and the lid ensured that it would not dry out. And this was important for a whole range of artists who became interested and invested in representing nature at this time. So indeed, Pierre Renoir, one of the founders of Impressionism, said that without the invention of colours in tubes, there would be no Impressionism because portable paints meant that outdoor painting and the capture of that stunning Impressionist light was possible. Oh, I'm so glad that you've brought up Impressionism, Freya, uh, as this um, Impressionism and also post-Impressionism are really the art movements that captured me as a kid. And it's sort of the reason that I got interested in art history in the first place. When I was maybe 11 or 12, I went to London for the first time. And I have such a clear memory of going to the National Gallery. It was one of my first ever trips to a museum and standing in front of Vincent van Gogh or van Gogh's yellow sunflowers and just being absolutely wowed by the colors but also the kind of lifelike qualities of the paint it looks so fresh I couldn't believe it was really so old um, and I guess thinking back kind of today with my art historian hat on I suppose it really was the materiality of this thick impasto paint that really struck me uh, anyways uh, my kind of 11 year old self popped off to the gift shop and I spent all of my pocket money on a tiny little sunflower jigsaw that I actually still have which I think says a lot I also think it's really interesting that you've mentioned Renoir, uh, another one of those kind of key late 19th century painters. And of course, he actually trained as a porcelain painter, which I don't think not everyone necessarily knows um, or thinks about straight away when you think of Renoir. Uh, and he was sent off at the age of 13 to be an apprentice and specialised in painting bouquets of flowers and decorative landscapes. And I just love that crossover between the training of these slightly two different mediums that you sometimes get at this point in the 19th century. And actually, anytime that you see Renoir painting ceramics in his work, the materiality that he achieves through these objects is just incredible. And I think his understanding of colors and especially of different textures definitely must come from this formative education in ceramics and that link between painting and porcelain that's amazing, Caroline, and I had absolutely no idea, and I can see Freya as well looking surprised at this. I think, yeah, that's so interesting, and it's, it's fascinating as well that we're all talking about paint as our first memories of dealing with artworks and our sort of first avenues into art history. So this week I actually dug out an old box of watercolours that I had as a child and I've been carrying it around um, from house to house ever since, but I've never really returned to it. So this is a box uh, made of wood and it's maybe the size and shape of something like a com computer keyboard that when you open it has tubes of paint inside set into this plastic surface and it also has a white ceramic palette in there for mixing paints. And when I opened it, I was quite surprised to see everything inside frozen from my childhood. So there were dried up old paintbrushes, half used tubes and flecks of paint that were still clinging to the palette. And it took me back to the days when I would enthusiastically take my paints into the garden as a child or ask my mum if I could borrow um, some vegetables from the fridge or a teapot or something to make admittedly a very boring still life. And seeing this box 
as a sort of archive. The materials inside can be read in terms of my own memories and experiences. And they put me in mind of another similar item, which has always fascinated me. And it's something that I'd love to work on in the future. And this is the paint box that belonged to Emily Bronte. So when we think of the Bronte sisters, it's most usually their work as writers that springs to mind. And if you go to the, the parsonage in Haworth in Yorkshire, you can see the material culture of this on display. So writing desks, spectacles, uh, pens, paper, that sort of thing. But of course, the children were also keen artists. And Emily's watercolours, particularly of their family dogs and pet Kestrel, have always enchanted me. This box owned by Emily is made of wood with a lid that you can lift up. Insides are lots of small compartments where the paint sits and underneath there's another drawer that has uh, sort of separate compartments uh, that are filled with ceramic palettes for mixing. And it remains this amazing archival record of her creativity in which every ink blot or splatter of paint represents an action that she took or an artwork that she was producing. And it's such a lovely, intimate space, a sort of tiny world that Emily occupied and that by peering into it, we can ourselves catch a glimpse of. But it also shows how connected the Bronte children were to the world outside. And there's a stamp in the inside of the box that shows it was actually made by Rudolf Ackerman, who was a famous supplier of art products, things like paints, coloured papers, ribbons and all sorts of art supplies at the end of the 18th and into the early 19th century. And there's this connectivity of paint and the networks that it makes visible that really comes out in our conversation with Kate. Hello. This episode, we are thrilled to be joined by Dr. Kate Nichols, Birmingham Fellow in the Department of Art History, Curating and Visual Studies at the University of Birmingham. Welcome, Kate. Hello. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast to talk to us today about paint and specifically paint in 19th century Britain. So as our listeners know, this series, we're exploring different types of material that were used in the fine and decorative arts in the 18th and 19th centuries. But I'm sure some of you may be a little bit surprised to see that paint is on that list. Often we think of it as a visual medium rather than a material object. So we're really excited to talk to you about it today in these terms. So I guess before we sort of dive into talking a bit more about your research in detail, can you start to sort of say a little bit about how you got interested in paint and exactly how you think about paint as the material kit? Yes, so I got first interested in paint when I was doing my PhD because I was looking at 19th century debates over whether or not ancient Greek sculpture had been painted. So I got kind of interested in paint and colour on sculpture in, in those terms. And I think I initially thought, well, paint and material stuff, it's a bit dry, maybe a little bit connoisseurial, <laughs> maybe not quite what I was interested in. But the more I read about paint in sculpture in the 19th century and colour in sculpture, the more kind of connected to ideas about imperialism, racist hierarchies, mass audiences for art, health, gender. There was so many things that kind of came up in the relation to ideas about paint and colour and sculpture in the 19th century. I thought, oh, this is actually really much more interesting than I had initially thought it was. And Charmaine Nelson's work in particular was really important for me. Her book, The Colour of Sculpture, 
really kind of helped me rethink what colour and paint might mean in these contexts. So that was when I first kind of got interested in it, but I'm looking at it in a very different way now. After my PhD, I had a teaching fellowship at York and I was teaching lots of David Peters Corbett's modules that he developed while he was writing his book, A World in Paint. And that explores the ways in which the physical stuff of paint creates meaning and changes the experience of artwork in the 19th century. Because I was teaching all these courses that he'd been drawing on, I started reading much more widely on, on paint because I'd never really worked on paint at all. I'd always worked on sculpture. And it just got me thinking much more about the social meanings of materials. Reading kind of Anthea Callan's stuff on Degas' Bathers was something that just completely blew my mind. And, you know, because I, I never did it. I didn't do an art history degree. Um, so there's a lot of kind of stuff that I hadn't encountered. I did, I did, um, I did a classics degree, so I kind of came at it at a bit of a funny angle. But yeah, just kind of thinking about the way that colour and the application of paint could be involved in ideas about hygiene, uh, femininity, morality. It just made all these new connections that I'd, I'd never thought about. And I think it's also in our teaching as well. Often when we teach students about materials in a one-off first year module where you do, this is what watercolour is, this is what this is. And actually to kind of connect it to broader questions isn't something that happens that often. At the moment, I'm trying very hard to write um, a global history of Victorian art, which is a bit of a mad project. It's enormous, obviously. It's, and it, it kind of involves rethinking what British art is and how entangled it is in other cultures. And it looks a lot at imperial power dynamics. And one chapter, having done all this thinking about paint and looked at the materials of paint and their social meanings for a while now, I absolutely really wanted to have a chapter on materials. And there's so much great work on materials and empire that there's just so much to build on. And what my chapter on materials will really show the way in which the physical stuff that makes up a painting is entirely predicated on global connections and you cannot disentangle the two. And then kind of drawing more on the work of kind of what the social and aesthetic meanings of the material additive paint are. So this, the actual stuff comes from all over the world. But then if we think about the, the meanings of it as it gets turned into a painting, that's connected and you can't kind of pull it apart from the global nature and, and often grotesque kind of imperial power imbalances as well. So you've, you're talking about already not only long chronological history of paint right from it being applied to ancient sculpture, but also a sort of geographically wide context that you're setting in. And I wondered, thinking specifically about the 19th century, I know a lot of your work at moments looking at the sort of mid to late 19th century in particular, if you can say something more about I guess what's happening to paint specifically in this moment that's different from centuries that have come before. And one thing that you sent us before we started recording was this fantastic late 19th century advert. So Kate, I wonder if you can just tell us a little bit about this advert and maybe describe it for our listeners. Yeah, so the advert is for Windsor and Newton's moist watercolours in collapsible tubes. Um, and it's from the 1882 Windsor and Newton catalogue. So Windsor and Newton were one of those, a big 19th century firm, well, very familiar to anyone who does any painting themselves or anything, any art supply stuff today. In themselves, they were part of these new 19th century developments. And I'm, I know I'm very mindful of speaking to an 18th century person, Maddie, that <laughs> I'm not claiming here that everything in the 19th century was new or different. That, there's nothing, there's nothing new and you can never kind of claim that starting point. But I think in the 19th century, it really intensifies these developments. So the advert has at the top of it, it says Windsor and Newton's moist watercolours in collapsible tubes. 
And it says, moist watercolours in tubes, although somewhat wasteful, are of assistance as furnishing quickly a quantity of colour. And it kind of goes on to talk about what their effects might be. They should be used within reasonable time as they do not keep long or so well as the ordinary moist colours in porcelain pans. And then it kind of goes beneath that. It has the different types of colours you can get in different categories of price. So the one shilling band, the one shilling 6D band, the two shilling band, the three shilling band and then the five shilling band. What it doesn't include is the really, really expensive stuff that was like five, 15 shillings a pop. Um, but mm-hmm. it's, these are the the cheaply, readily available items that you can buy. So two things that really um, kind of struck me in thinking about this before we started talking was, first of all, the fact that these are coming to people um, that are purchasable in this really quite astonishing packaging that people are experiencing them for sale in a different way that maybe paint would have been made available, packaged, moved around like you say, in the 18th century. But also, these sections that have different prices kind of are a way of organising the colours, right? So different colours are worth more than other colours. Is that that colours were particularly difficult to make, uh, that they were coming from particularly far away? How how does the price relate to the colours on this advert? Well, yeah, it's interesting, actually, because you'd think that the ones that are coming from furthest away would be the most expensive. Some of the stuff like ultramarine ash, that's not quite if I understand correctly that's not quite the same as ultramarine it's a slightly different form of ultramarine and like a kind of almost like a byproduct but so that's expensive because it, that comes from a much more complex mineralogical um, extraction process so some of these are in the one shilling band Antwerp blue the first one that's a great one to start with because that's that's a nice a nicer uh, 18th century <laughs> um, invention it was kind of the first synthetic paint that was made so I should I should I should back up a minute actually and say and maybe explain what paint is before I go into too much detail so paint is made up of pigment which gives paint the colour and pigments can be natural so from minerals or derived from animals and plants or artificial so made by people and pigments don't start being artificially manufactured in great force until the mid 19th century but there are some like Antwerp or also known as Prussian blue which are um, invented in about 18 in about 17 around 1700. Oh the other thing that goes into paint so there's pigment is paint the colour so natural or artificial. And then vehicles, which the vehicle is what binds the pigment to make paint. And these are also really, really fascinating. And I'm mostly going to talk about pigment today, but you could do a whole different thing on the different kinds of vehicles that are used. So most commonly in the 19th century, linseed oil, but also poppy seed, and in some instances, whale oil as well. These things are entirely predicated on global commodity chains. You know, linseed oil comes primarily from Egypt in this period. But just looking back at the advert, um, so Antwerp blue, that's an artificial pigment. So you might think that they might be cheaper because perhaps there's, you know, it's something that could be manufactured in England. And to, to some extent, that's true. But if you look down the list, you see, so Indian red, that's made from, it's made from sap and the excretions of special of larvae that only are in Southeast Asia. Indigo as well has a really complicated, fascinating history. And again, that is coming specifically from India and under really unpleasant working conditions, but it's, it's cheap. So I think, yeah, looking at these different price bands is really, is really fascinating because perhaps the things you expect are not quite as they seem. In this advert, then, we've, we've kind of got this, I guess, a whole sort of global history in terms of travel, in terms of empire, but also in terms of the different industries that are 
producing some of the elements that are now that are going into paint but also it kind of gives an insight I guess into how paint was being bought and potentially who could afford to buy it so in the 19th century as we're saying you know paints are becoming more readily available uh, and more complex there's potentially more sort of color diversity so is there a sort of divide between professional artists using these materials and more amateur artists sort of working with them at home on holiday that kind of thing this is one of the big the big transformations that you see in the 19th century. So the collapsible metal paint tubes are invented in 1841. You don't get collapsible watercolours until around 1850. But what you really see with the whole amateur professional thing is a shift really. So earlier, up until around the 18th century, artists manufactured their own paints and they kind of passed on recipes through their studios. But then as the status of artists change and more and more people start painting, from the 17th century onwards, there's the whole new business of the artist colour man who, you know, is kind of satirised and lampooned in various 19th century and 18th century discussions. Um, but the artist colour man and, and sometimes colour women as well, there, there are a few of them, um, who supply paint and materials to artists, um, often or to anyone who wants to paint. So it's often kind of starts off as a sideline. So these are people who are usually involved in making house paints as well. But by the most, by the 19th century, most artists use colour men instead of making their own paints and this is when you get the emergence of firms like Reeves, Windsor and Newton, Ackermans and Robesons, some of the kind of big ones that really pop up in the 19th century and these are producing it on an industrial scale you know using steam-powered machines to grind the pigments so it's it's completely different and it changes it changes so much Kirsty Sinclair Dietzen's done written some amazing stuff about the changes in texture of paint that industrial paint making mechanisms created. So it, it apparently becomes wow. more sort of buttery is the word used to describe it. And so in the late 19th century, you get some artists, William Holman Hunt and G.F. Watts, who's Kirsty writes about her, him in particular, going away from the industrially made paint and going back to learning how to make them, the paints themselves. And Holman Hunt talks a lot about the alienation of artists from their materials in the 19th century. And you, in the later 19th century, you get kind of the return to these, um, to medieval media like fresco and tempera as kind of a reaction against this industrially made paint. And Kirsty Dutzen argues that this in particular with, with the case of G.F. Watts is his kind of stance against capitalism and industrialism and um, that he's really, paint is an intensely political medium for him. So paint as a as a material then is at the heart of these sort of these much wider political and economic discussions, but also they're offering very different sort of embodied experiences, right? So painting um, with paints that you've mixed yourself, that you've made in your studio and that you have a sort of a visceral relationship with is very different from squeezing it out of a tube, I guess. And yeah. I wonder yeah. if that is, I suppose this would be sort of hard to measure, but how the question then arises of how that is affecting the creative process of an artist, right? And how they're interacting with the with the media itself and, and what they are able to do with it, I guess, either on a canvas or on a wall or you know, whatever they're applying the paint to, really. It's also really interesting, you know, the kind of wider access to you can just buy your little tube of paints and take it away with you there's lots when when these come out these new paint more forms of transporting paint first come out so before it was you get kind of a, like a, an animal an animal bladder bound at the top full of paint and a painter would pierce the bladder with a, with a pin and then use a little stopper and they were really really messy 
So, I mean, I think we kind of had this idea that no one painted outside until the 19th century, which is obviously nonsense, but this made it a lot mm. easier um, to do. And when these first came out, there were loads of editorials published saying, and maybe now it's not so messy, ladies will be able to paint outside more. So there's sort of like a gendered aspect to um, these new mass-produced items, right? That they're kind of considered more, I guess, more suitable. But as well, I mean, I think especially of watercolours and portability, there's so much interesting work done on the wives of great important imperial men travelling the world with them and taking their watercolours with them and kind of documenting stuff on a on a small scale. So again, it is, is very, very gendered and in all sorts of interesting ways. It is really interesting to see how this sort of process of painting shifts when the materials themselves start to shift as well. Um, just picking up on that point, Kate, about global travel and bringing it back to the advert and the global terms that are actually used to describe the different colours. So you have Chinese white to Italian pink to Indian yellow and various other, I think there's a couple of Indian colours. Are you able to perhaps say a bit more about the actual titles that are given for paint themselves and the, the sort of the imperial connections, I suppose, that are underlining those? Maybe I'll start with Indian yellow. There's an absolutely fantastic article by Jordana Bielkin on Indian yellow. So Indian yellow is made from the dried up urine of cows who've been fed a diet exclusively of mango leaves. So it's, it's very specific and it's made specifically in India. That's that's it's kind of part of the marketing of it. So I think there's a lot about marketing with these, but also kind of giving people a sense, I suppose if people are alienated from their products that they're buying because they don't make them anymore, maybe giving them this kind of air of exotic, I'm painting with, I'm not just painting with red, I'm painting with Indian red, you know, mm. and, and it kind of makes those connections. And it, this imperial connections is something that 19th century artists were really aware of as well. Interesting that you said earlier as well that the paint companies were making um, paint for use in interior design as well as artist materials and thinking about bringing the the British Empire into the British house. I mean, that's something that had been happening since the 18th century, but it's being done in in very, very explicit and I guess a way that is filtering down to the middle classes uh, in a way that wasn't happening in the 18th century, that now you can, you know, buy your Indian yellow paint and paint a, a watercolour or paint your wall in your own home. Farrow and Ball still do Indian yellow as a colour. It's, it's not made in the same way, it's a synthetically made one now, but... It's kind of interesting that they that those kind of that sort of weird nostalgia for empire that seems to still be around in Britain, devastatingly so. Yeah, they're still trading on those connotations. Yeah, definitely, mm. it's really fascinating. And I guess another thing to say is that new technological developments mean there are new pigments available as well. So the isolation of new elements like chromium means you can create chrome yellow, and Prussian green, and viridian. And so these are kind of 19th century, well, chromium's isolated in 1797, but these are 19th century developments because it's in from 1840s plus you get Chinese white, which is made from zinc and that kind of gets marketed. So you see these kind of scientific developments that then get related to artistic developments as well. I can't remember why Chinese white is called Chinese white. It's um, not something maybe to do with porcelain manufacture and the sort of purity of 
of that. It's maybe an interesting sort of connection there between materials, thinking about, you know, ceramics and, and paint and maybe like how they might speak to each other, especially in a sort of an imperialist British domestic context as well, right? And chemical makeups for ceramics from the end of the 18th century onwards were sometimes, you know, coming before innovations were made in paint itself, they were coming in the actual glazes that were used in the chemists and plus chemists and ceramicists working together in that. But it's interesting, of course, because chrome becomes a big thing in ceramic production in the early 19th century, end of the 1790s. So it's interesting there are some kind of global crossovers. Yeah, and I think we always, it's, it's, it's our fault as art historians that we kind of have these ridiculous separations of the fine and decorative arts and their histories and the possibilities of them. They're so bound up in each other, aren't they? And uh-huh. that's really interesting from, from your perspective, Caroline, to hear that as well. And it was interesting you mentioned the global kind of context of travelling and, of course, amateur artists traveling but what about the professional artists at this time traveling to these places where presumably they believe you know with their Indian yellows off to India did that happen was there much of a kind of physical movement traveling to these places with the paints as well more so than had perhaps happened previously I think this it's it's much easier to do by the 19th century to travel but actually the famous kind of academicians like someone like Frederick Layton he travels a lot in the 1860s um, and it's, I mean, it's kind of grim, actually. He describes the people he meets in terms of the paint, the colour he would use to paint their skin, which is, it's really interesting. And, and, and yeah, really fascinating. Like he talks about meeting burnt umber people. So um, there's actually a sort of a key being used here as a way of racially signifying people through paint. So paint sort of becomes the vision through which artists might actually rationalise the global world, the global 19th century world. Absolutely, absolutely. There's also, I don't know, there seems something almost reductionary, the idea of reducing down a person to a, a, a you know, different type of commodity through the materiality of the paint colour that they signify. And he doesn't describe any white people in terms of the paint colour he'd used to paint them. Yeah. So, um, so it's definitely an othering process. But there's also, I mean, this is in Bialkin's study of Indian yellow. Indian yellow is a commodity produced in empire and easily circulated because of empire but it was also a color used in the depiction of people of color used to create a particularly kind of glowing skin tone so it both represents racial difference and is kind of construed through the racialized aspects of empire as well so it's a really incredible pigment to study and to see its political implications but also it it becomes then the site of protest because of its manufacture out of out of and the cruelty to animals involved in in the making of it it then becomes a huge site of hindu nationalist protest and and eventually the british government there's a kind of informal ban on the production of indian yellow so it, it's because of the, the kind of fear of Indian people rising up against this particular paint product. So you, there's just so much. I mean, just that as an example, there's just so much within one colour that you could think about. But beyond, before you even start to think about the cultural resonances of that colour, to actually think about the stuff it's made of and the histories of how that stuff was made. And it's there, it's just there in those paintings, physically in those paintings, and you just, you wouldn't even know. I mean, every single painting, it doesn't matter if the painting is of, of you know, a, a cat in a shoe, It's it's got kind of a, which I, I would love, um, but it's got kind of a global connection. It doesn't just have to be that the empire resides only in images that depict swashbuckling battles. For a 19th century British audience, would these connections to do with empire, to do with the sort of contested politics 
of paint, would they be legible in a painting in a gallery? That's a really great question. It's, it's hard to know. I mean, this stuff was talked about a lot. So the discussions on where material was coming from were, were quite widespread and artists certainly knew. So Holman Hunt, for example, talks about it being really difficult to get linseed for a while because of the Crimean War. There's lots of linseed grown around the Black Sea area and the Crimean War put a stop to that. And then it was really hard to get linseed. And that's when it moved to Egypt, the production of linseed. So it was really hard to get stuff to make your own. But the extent to which non-professionals would have known that, I guess if you read the newspapers, Indigo is another great example where there were big rebellions and it was it was quite widespread in the British press, the, the Indigo Rebellion, um, so-called Indigo Rebellion in 1859. So if you read the newspaper, you might be alert to this, but I don't know if it's necessarily something at the time people would have looked at a painting and thought, huh, there's a, or, or whether people will be able to even identify the meanings of those colours. I guess it's quite different from like a kind of Baxendale period I ultramarine mm. oh yeah look at that we know this is a really really expensive product I don't think there would have been the same and especially because there was it would be I think it would be hard for someone who wasn't an artist to necessarily look and know what the colour was because there was such a greater diversity of colours both um, artificial and natural so I don't know whether people would have had the same sense. Kate we've reached the point in the podcast where we're going to talk about um, your object in focus so this is a painting from the Birmingham Museum and Art Gallery collection so for our listeners can you describe what's happening in this painting and then maybe go and say something a little bit about the artist and why you chose a work by him. Yeah so um, this painting shows Apollo standing with one foot on a chariot he has his other foot on the backs of two lions, one of whom is turning around to look at him. And then the other three lions, lionesses, are, are at the front. So there's five lions in total. They're dragging this chariot. So Apollo's god of the sun, dragging this chariot across a landscape, which if you look very closely, you can see there's little crocuses all over the bottom. In the background, there's a sky and mountains, which gives it this kind of, it's got a kind of Mediterranean aura. Apollo looks very much like the famous sculpture of the Apollo Belvedere and I would say this is a classic Breton Riviere painting in that the people are kind of terribly painted and the animals are kind of amazingly painted. Probably the best work, best known work by Breton Riviere is his painting Sympathy which depicts a little girl. Uh, it's a very famous Victorian image. Riviere himself isn't particularly well known but that image is, is really well known. It's like a typical sentimental Victorian painting so in that sense this painting is kind of different. So Riviere is from a Huguenot family hence his surname. He's described as the heir to Landseer in the second half of the 19th century but he's kind of forgotten today. He doesn't really fit with today's taste in paintings <laughs> um, but I find him absolutely fascinating um, and so there's not you know there's, there's barely been anything there's like one a handful of articles written about him he does domestic animal paintings, he does um, exotic animal paintings, and I've spent, as part of my book project, I'm looking at the histories of the animals in his paintings. So I've been, he used to go to London, he lived very near London Zoo, and he used to go to London Zoo to paint in the mornings, and I've been through all of London Zoo's archives to work out exactly which combinations of lions he was painting and where they were from, and I've traced the shipping routes of those lions into Riviere's 
So you've actually been able to trace the actual animals that he was yeah. working from. The zoo archives are amazing. They have this really grisly thing called the death book. <laughs> and yeah, it's, it's, they're so detailed. And I, I know who went out and got, I mean, his process was he'd sketch lots of, I mean, you could never tell exactly which lion it was. It, you know, it was he'd sketch lots of different lions and then he'd put them into one. But I've come up with kind of a reasonable, I guess with, with this project, I'm not trying to pinpoint down. He used Indian yellow in this, and this takes us exactly to here. It's just kind of using this painting as a way into asking some of those questions. So I have a good sense, a good working hypothesis of which lions he, he would have been drawing from and where they came from and who brought them to the UK, how they ended up in London Zoo. And that this does all connect to paint. I'm not just rambling on about animals. Um, so the reason I chose this is I have been a vegetarian for a really long time. I've been a vegan for four years now, and I've never quite seen those kind of personal life aspects connected to my research. But the more I just got so interested in Riviere and I thought, well, I need to learn about animal studies and I need to think about this kind of ethical side. And there's so much wonderful research in animal studies, especially in kind of this, in the newer areas of art, historical animal studies that really look at the materials that go into an artwork. So again, I'd kind of really looked at the imperialism of materials, but then also the animal products that make up artworks. And I just find this absolutely fascinating. It's always been something I'd ethically lived through and I'd never really thought, well, what about the things I study? They're mm. all just made up of animal body parts. And the more you kind of start to think about it, you know, the more, the more it unravels. And I think that's what's really, really interesting in this is, is thinking about the materials of art making in relation to the meaning they can kind of realise. So um, this is something Jason Edwards, um, but also Giovanni Aloy have worked particularly about kind of drawing attention to the dead crustacea, insects, cows, pigs, badgers, horses, whales, all of this stuff that make the bodies of pigment, marble, leather, paintbrush, varnishes, and make art making possible. Um, so again, it's kind of thinking about the meanings of these materials. And so like dead or exploited animals are in every artwork, but I think it's really important to acknowledge their presence in artwork that deals with non-human animals. And I don't know, I think once you start to think, okay, so this is an, an image of uncontrollable animal life, but it's made up of dead animals. And what, what does that do to this sense of these lions, which are so alive in this painting? And you know, like Riviere would have been so aware, and um, the artists certainly would have been so aware of this going into the material, that it's predicated on animals in incarceration, but also, the literal stuff he's painting with these bits of animal body parts. I wonder if there's a sort of disconnect from the animals that he's going to see in the zoo that are living, you know, until they end up in the death book. Um, but also uh, between the sort of disconnect between, between those animals and the paint that he's using that's presumably been um, manufactured elsewhere, or at least the different elements of it have been manufactured elsewhere before coming to his studio. And and whether, you say, I mean, you say that he'd be aware of that process, but to what extent do you think that was sort of at the forefront of his mind, you know, as he's painting a lion, is he thinking about the animals that have made up his paint? I very much doubt that he would have been thinking about that at all. Especially because Riviere bought his stuff from Robeson's, the colour the color man. There's all the records of the paint he bought. No, I don't, I don't think Riviere would have been thinking about that at all. Um, but I just think it's so interesting for us to look at this as a material object and to really think, you know, you look at it and you see this, it's such a kind of image of, of animal strength and animal vitality. And then when you really digest it, you think, well, it was only made possible because 
these it's you have, it's kind of like a bifocal way of looking at something i suppose the most obvious thing is it was only possible because these animals were in a tiny tiny little cage in london zoo he couldn't have painted them otherwise he couldn't have observed the different poses that they made um without them being incarcerated but also you know with he couldn't have painted it without those animal products that were were put together and yeah it's 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 just so fascinating i think once you start to think about how materials work and what what they do it does change the meaning of the actual representation itself as well i mean i don't i don't think riviere would have given two hoots about it or thought about it at all he was you know i don't think he was thinking of it from a kind of critical animal studies perspective just thinking about the painting itself are you able to say anything about where I mean, obviously, you know, the painting represents as an object layers and layers and layers of different colours, different paints that have been built up. But you, have you been able to identify or would you be able to speculate um, about where some of these colours have come from? I'm kind of at the beginning of doing this, um, but I have been to the Robeson's archive. This painted in 1895 and in 1894, Robeson is buying genuine ultramarine. Um, and in 19th century handbooks, to the use of ultramarine, it's specified that it's particularly good for sky and receding mountains. You have here, you know, he also buys a canvas that is the size of this canvas in the same bulk load of stuff he buys from Robeson. So I would imagine it's gone in. And if you think about ultramarine, you know, that's something that's coming from Afghanistan. It's incredibly expensive and very unusual for 19th century painters to be using it because they tended to use artificial, um, synthetically made stuff by this point. So, so why was he looking to get the real deal then? Why was that important to him? With this painting, he's really proud of it. There was already a painting by Riviere in Birmingham Museum and Art Gallery um, in 1895. And he wrote to them and said, I want this painting in your gallery, give me back the old one. Birmingham Museum and Art Gallery opened in 1885 and it, it was kind of a new, big, important civic art gallery. And he really wanted his work to be recognised in it, in the, in the kind of fledgling collection there. So I think that's kind of interesting that he was very much, he painted this and he wants Birmingham Museum and Art Gallery to have it. So I think this is obviously a painting he regarded as very important. You could see that with the materials used. You know, it's a painting that, is made possible by the so-called scramble for Africa. The lions that were coming out of Africa at the time were, I mean, the way that and these animals were ended up in London Zoo as part of that kind of informal beginnings of empire. Hunters would go out, kill a whole family and bring back the cubs. So that's, it's all, I mean, all interconnected. It's really interesting, the global scope, but then you have London and then you also have Birmingham, which at this point, you know, maybe much more considered sort of regional and the three kind of locations if we can call it global location, but everything coming together is very interesting. And what you've been saying about the different social meanings of materiality of paint, whether it's through the imperial colonial connections or it's through this very, I think it's fascinating, if um, unsettling almost that we don't necessarily think about the actual animal products that make up these colors and then they're used by someone like Riviere, you know, to create this incredible yet dramatic piece. Is there a way or do you think there's scope to reinterpret these types of paintings from this particular kind of era that you're looking at? Can museums do more to highlight the materiality of the paint and its global context as well as the actual product itself? What sort of scope do you think there is for that? Well, I think, I mean, I think it, people find it very interesting, like when you kind of turn it on its head a little bit. So we did um, a small exhibition at the Barber Institute with my colleague Samuel, Samuel Shaw and I, 
um, on animals and we hosted an evening where we did kind of people could come into the gallery and we got the student like lots of like the student vegan society came in and we we did talks on like can there be such a thing as a vegan artwork and you know what what what, what why aren't there dinosaurs in animal art and all, all sorts of kind of random weird questions and people absolutely were completely fascinated and had I don't think people ever think about the materials of art or if they do it's in quite a different way maybe so I think there's a lot of scope for museums I think people will find it really interesting because it's just such a different way of seeing the artwork rather than just trying to work out what the story is and, and of course like you have to you know lots of classical mythology is quite is really quite impenetrable and you need an explanation of what the story is but maybe if you kind of you know move beyond just the subject matter and think about something else that's within these works and you can really make those connections and I think it's a really you know if we're in a moment now where institutions are we could debate or not whether it's possible to decolonize any institution but they are some institutions are mindful that this is something that they might want to start doing and you know it's an easy way in to do that because you can think about everything you know think of the varnish Riviera was buying buckets of this stuff called copal copal is it's made from the gum of trees primarily was in in what is now tanzania and it was a new kind of varnish for paint in this period so specifically you think of it in like academic painting as well um but it was it's been kind of understood as one of the means that german imperialism got such a foothold in tanzania at the time so you can kind of there's so much you know it's not just the british empire there's all these different european nations that are involved as well and once you start to kind of you know probably every painting in every regional art gallery is mm. covered in copal you know you or copal whatever i don't know how you say it so you, there's so much once you start to think about the materials that make up something it, you can really go beyond it but i think you can also connect those materials back to the subject matter as well and that's what um Bielkin does so brilliantly with her study of imperial yellow you know it's kind of talking about this pigment as a commodity of empire but also an increased demand for it because of empire there's a demand for more images of people of color so you kind of you can see that how how the subject of the painting is connected so much to its material as well um, and mm-hmm. these bigger geopolitical things i think there's just so much there to actually unpick as you say and really reframe how we think about what actually is british art in the mid to late 19th century so everything that you're working on I think is fascinating research will be really interesting to see how it develops. You've been listening to the Travelling Sisterhood of Art Historians podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram and to subscribe.